Welcome to DemonCast episode 6, the one where Chris is high on Cody and Sarah's high on life. Sarah. I'm Chris. Oh dear. <laughs> I think out of all the starts we've had, that, that's got to be the... Uh... The best. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that one's going to be up there in my list of the top six starts we've ever done. Yeah. I'm, um, I've, I had a haircut today, so now I feel just fabulous and I can't contain myself. I'm that excited. Sarah texted me afterwards and said that her hair made her feel fly. I feel foolish for saying that now. Why? Because <laughs> that's the lamest thing, lamest thing to say. But Do you think you've become a Bootsy Collins lookalike yeah. overnight? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Are today. We... Sorry, go on. That's <laughs> all right. Hey, you know, um, you, you're happy about your haircut. I'm unhappy about my terrible back injury, which is agonising their listeners. He's going to start talking to you about it now because I've already lost interest. Well, thanks. I won't then. I'll suffer in silence while we discuss chapter 14 and 15. Who are? Who are indeed. Kind of tailed off there. I think that chapter 14 is, I would use the word cinematic. And I'll get to why I think that as we go along. But it is it is a most cinematic chapter of literature. I definitely think they're like some really exciting chapters. Cinematic, interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued to see what you say. There are, I mean, we get, we get a bit of an action. Yes, we do. We certainly do. Yeah. Um, so do you want to do you want to jump straight in? Oh, I feel like if you do, you could just do it. Okay, then I will. <laughs> so we kind of we pick up where we left off in the last chapter. They're they're still travelling. Luckily, Phil keeps it a bit shorter than like The Hobbit and uh, Lord of the Rings. So we have a bit of travelling, but not page upon page. I, I clearly remember reading The Lord of the Rings and there being, a, I think, like a three-page description of a brooch they found on a mountain path while they were walking. Mm. Yeah, thankfully Phil's not gone there. It's hard times. So, yeah, so while they're walking, um, John Farr and Father Coram kind of express concerns about Mrs Coulter's whereabouts, which I think is fair. She's a bit of a loose cannon. Mm. Um, Lyra is worried too, but considering how she feels about um, Lord Asriel, and she's very much like, yes, he's my dad, she's not kind of getting those same vibes from Mrs Coulter. She no. still can't quite bring herself to think about Mrs Coulter as her mum. Yeah, she's um, well, she hates her. I think what's interesting about that whole thing of describing how she feels about Coulter is most of her dislike for her focuses on the monkey demon rather than Coulter herself. And I was thinking of that as being like, you know, if the demon's the soul, it's kind of your inner self made visible. So mm. is that a common thing? Do people hate other people's demons? Yeah, because that demon is an absolute dick. Yeah, but it's also um, part of her, isn't it? It's a yeah, really weird but- concept that it's like one person in two bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a weird one. I hadn't kind of really thought of that. But yeah, there must be, It's. it says something about her, clearly, how that monkey is. Yeah. But what? That she's a asshole <laughs> overall. Yeah, that that might well be it. But we don't get much of that before the party, um, the rescue party, is attacked. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this is the first cinematic bit. Yeah, because they fight. they they kind of well they they walk into a fog bank and that's where the attack happens. And it reminded me of like every war film, particularly every Vietnam film ever, is like the description of arrows flying out of the fog. It's like, watch any Vietnam war movie and you just get bullets flying out of the jungle, but you don't see the attackers. Mm. That's a real common thing in war films. So like there's a few points in this chapter where he evokes cinematic imagery, I think. But it's also a really convenient way of not having to describe the battle in too much detail (laughs) because, you know, he just has to describe some arrows flying out of the fog yeah yeah I, I quite enjoyed this um bit of like it was you know you got a sense of the the confusion of what was happening and the, the fear mm. because you can't see what's going on um yeah. but, and, and, and also the shock of the Egyptians and their party like basically no one reacts three people are dead before anyone even realizes they're being attacked and then it's sort of John Farr rallies everyone and leads yeah, because it's the first time they've really come up against like outright danger. Mm. You know, that really in your face and all of them at the same time. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this is what the war band was assembled for, essentially. Yeah. But we kind of lose any sense of that, other than Yorick Brinson <laughs> diving into the fog himself. And then I imagine it almost like a cartoon where you have the ball of smoke and just pow, kapow, flying out and people mm. screaming. He goes into the fog, there's loads of screaming and battle noises. Yeah. But again, you don't have to have that described. Because yeah. it's in the fog. Convenient, Phil. Well played. Fair. I'll let you have that one, Phil. Um, but the the kind of the outcome of this whole situation is that Lyra gets taken. You'd have thought that someone maybe would have been watching over yeah. a little bit more carefully. Yeah. I mean, they, they dash in, don't they? Uh, interesting there, like, Pan is the one that gets attacked, but it actually injures Lyra again. She gets winded when mm-hmm. Pan's jumped on by another demon. And then she gets dragged off and hooded and it almost sounds like when the SAS catch someone with a snatch squad, stick a bag over her head, tie her hands together and she's gone in a second. Yeah. And Lyra is actually quite hard on herself because she hasn't checked the alethia meter because that would have been handy. Hmm. Yeah, she's a bit remiss of the golden child to, to forget to mm. check it. But I think it's also a sign that maybe she's starting to realise what kind of responsibility comes with mm. being able to read the alethia meter. Maybe, yeah, again, this was happening in the previous chapters. She'd sort of seen it as fun, but I guess now she's really counting the cost of what happens when she overlooks that ability. Yeah, and also, unusually as well, once they've been taken, Pan actually takes charge a little bit more Mm. and he kind of calms Lyra down. Yeah, he sort of tells her what to do, pretend Mm. to be unconscious, and he also helps to hide the spy fly doesn't he because she's still mm. got that that robot spy fly that automaton with her he sneaks it down and in, into her boot yeah so that they don't find it the kidnappers who we still don't know who they are at this point her and pan are speculating that they're tartars and that that means they're definitely going to be taken to the gobblers because mm. the tartars are working for them yeah and lyra is actually at this point scared of being taken to the gobblers it's yeah. stopped being kind of this imaginary foe and now she's kind of seen what happened to um tony macarios there is an actual fear there yeah i think it's interesting that um the gobblers don't always get referred to gobblers now we found out it's the ablation board and all the rest mm. of it sometimes they refer to them more directly as what they are but whenever it's kind of a fearful event like this mm. they get referred to as the gobblers more like the childlike language yeah like the childish fear the, of exactly them. yeah Phil also emphasises at this point Lyra and Pan's connection because obviously we know now what the Gobblers do. So just to kind of emphasise what would happen were they to end up at the Gobblers, he kind of 
says that the word severed came to their mind. Mm. So it's like they have one mind joined and it's just a kind of reminder yeah. of like, this is how connected they are. So imagine what would happen if they were separated. Yeah, exactly. And in both of these chapters, they use the words like single words like he and she and they're a lot more interchangeably. Mm. He kind of gets a lot more loose in the way he describes them and it sort of builds more the impression that they're one thing, one person. Mm. It kind of, he's just constantly like from the end of part one, more or less, and the beginning of part two of the book, he's just constantly like building that now because obviously they get into the point where they might get separated. Mm. So he's definitely just keeps on labouring on how like harmful that would be. Yeah. Elira, eventually she gets unhooded and everything and she sees her captive for the first time. And I wondered at this point, and it's kind of something we've really, really briefly touched on before, but very briefly, is it problematic that a lot of the people of colour in Northern Lights are portrayed as like being savages or on the side of gobblers? I mean, so I guess you're referring to the Samoyeds, which is mm-hmm. who's kidnapped her. And I guess they're Inuits, effectively. Mm-hmm. Eskimos, that is a problematic word, isn't yes, it? it? That's is, the yeah. racial slur for them. But, you know, Inuits, effectively. Um, yeah, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I mean, I suppose the thing is, in the context of the era we think this is supposed to be set, it's kind of turn of the 19th century. That was very much how those people would have been viewed back then. But also, a lot of the people he's discussing would have probably been living more wild lives. Hmm. I mean, that's how how people would have thought of them, but that's not necessarily how they were. And obviously, as the author, you have... The well, ability I mean, to in that time choose. period, you're just kind of moving into like the taming of the north and the taming of the west, where effectively native people were kind of put down into reservations and made mm. to live in towns and stuff. So maybe in their world, that's not meant to have happened, and they're just living more the way they would. Mm. I don't know. No, I still feel like it's 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 just very suspect. I think that every person of color that you come across. Because who else, I mean, there's the Samoyeds now, obviously, but who else does he directly discuss? I mean, I know he's a little bit, he has the whole Afric things and Skraylings. Africa. Yeah, but but like what race are Skraylings? Do we even know? Did we ever figure it out? Uh, I want to say they're native as well. I think the idea was that they're meant to be native people. And likewise with the Tartars maybe as well? Yeah, so Tartars are supposed to be um, the... I don't know if this is a... We are in such a minefield now because I'm so, like, not up with politically correct things, but I think Tartars are effectively black Russians, aren't they? As in not white Russians. So not Mm. literally black, but they're the um, sort sort of people from the more southern regions of the USSR, places like Azerbaijan and stuff. Mm. Um, I I feel like the Skralings maybe are supposed to be Same, which are... They're white, actually, but... I mean, in terms of just mm. their skin colour, they're they're sort of native tribes from around Finland and places like that. Mm. Um, but I would argue that even if they're white, they're still native people, so there's they still are, an yeah. issue kind of there. One thing I will say is that I think the TV series might be attempting to balance out some of the kind of whiteness. Well, yeah. Dark materials. Because the master of Jordan's black, isn't he, for one thing? Yeah, and I think the... Um, Ah, I'm scared of spoiling things by saying who people are going to be. But let's, let's, let's just let's leave it and basically just say that 
it does appear that they are trying to kind of balance it out a little yeah. bit. Um, but I, I th- felt that we would be remiss to not point out the fact that it is a little bit issuous. Fair enough. So kind of moving on from that, Lyra realises that the men don't actually know who she is. So they're not looking for her specifically. They've just picked her up because she's a child, which is kind of lucky for her. Yeah, she she sort of pretends to be Lizzie Brooks and acts like she doesn't know what's going on and she's just up there with traders and all the rest of it. Yeah, another example of Lyra thinking on her feet, one of her other like brilliant plans. Yeah. She takes on this character in order to sort of protect herself. Because we know shortly that these guys are taking her to the gobblers anyway, even though they're not Tartars. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that... Um, so initially, the gobblers were only kidnapping kids from London, or so we mm-hmm. thought, or Britain. But it looks like they've got people out. They're, essentially, they've got people just kidnapping kids from all over the place, anywhere they can get them from. Mm. Which kind of makes sense, actually, because if they're trying to do a science experiment, one of the things you aim for in a science experiment is the most diverse population of people possible. This so, is the scientist in Chris. Yeah, I'm just desperate to cling on to any scientific points now mm-hmm. in it. You know, and that was one, that was the only one in all these two chapters that jumped out at me. So please let me have it. You know, they've got a good population sample is what they've got, the gobblers. Well done. Good sciencing, you brutal maniacs. (laughs) I thought it was quite interesting as well that Lyra actually kind of is worried about John Farr, Farda Coram, Eirik, um, Lee, and that That's kind of unusual for her in a way because she's actually thinking outside of herself. Yeah, she doesn't do that often. I think the other really obvious example of that is when she's worried about Roger when he gets kidnapped at the beginning Mm. of the book. But then she sort of just stops thinking about him after a few pages. Yeah. (laughs) However long those pages are meant to be in Lyra world time. Yeah, whereas now she's she seems to kind of show a bit more kind of like concern Mm. for their well-being. Um. She's sort of growing up. Yeah. I was going to say, not only does it kind of indicate that her bravado is failing a little bit in the face of this kind of awful stuff that she's witnessing, but I think it also shows that she's growing up. Yeah. Um, Like I say, I think it's a sign that she's becoming more aware of the world around her and not so much on her internal world, which is what children do. She certainly does grow up throughout the books. And actually, it's interesting that it happens within the books as well, rather than from book to book. Harry Potter, for example. Boy, do I like bringing Harry Potter up. God, you do. <laughs> every Stop episode, it. Every episode. <laughs> I can't help it. It's the obvious comparison. Mm-hmm. Like, they mature between books, but you don't get that much sense of mature development until later on in the books. I don't mm. think within them, it's kind of like Harry Potter is a kid. Harry Potter is a bit of an older kid per book. And then at the end, there's a bit more development. Whereas in this, Lyra is kind of developing throughout, even, you know, from one part of the book to the next. Yeah, I think Phil does quite a good job of that, of showing how in tiny stages we grow into adults. Yeah. Um, and how this experience affects her. Um, another part of that is her realising how important the alethium eater is, again, um, because she she hides it. Yeah. She clearly knows that it's important. Mm-hmm. Like, she's really got to protect it now. Also, she knows that people might be looking for it and it might identify who she is mm-hmm. if the wrong people see it. Yeah, she's quite smart like that. I think, I don't know whether I'd have been as smart as a kid to kind of figure out those things that, you know, to keep herself safe. 
She she is conveniently good at espionage, I will say that. Like she really can construct a character and a backstory for herself and Amazing. stick to it really well. And she'd be great in interrogation. She'd never give anything away. Mm-mm. Like I'm I'm still not entirely convinced that there isn't some sort of James Bond crossover happening between Lyra and <laughs> the James Bond universe. Yeah. So eventually, skipping forward slightly, Lyra does arrive at Bullhunger. Mm-hmm. And when they get there and they're kind of introduced to the, the the scientists, we'll assume that they're scientists that are there. Um, the man asks Lyra if Pan can change form. And yeah. Pan, Pan, I feel like, right, at this point, Pan really fucks it up because yeah. if he hadn't have changed... Yeah, because he immediately, he said, can can your demon change? And, and Pan changes into a eagle or something and attacks like, his yeah, demon. Of course it could change. Yeah. Mm. I know I did wonder at that point, like if he hadn't done that, if she just said, no, no, he's fixed, would she be in danger anymore? Would they have tried to do the intercision on her still? But then maybe they would have just been like, we don't need her, do whatever you want with her. Yeah. To the to the other guys. So you don't know, I suppose. At least, I guess maybe Lyra and Pan's thought would be, we need to get inside, we need to be where the other children are, we need mm. to know what's happening. And that would have been her kind of primary thought. Yeah. Or maybe Pan just got overexcited. <laughs> oh, I, I suspect it's just Pan getting overexcited, to be honest. Because at this stage, Lyra and Pan still don't really know what Intercision's about, do they? They've kind of, they know what it is now because they found Tony Makarios with his demon chopped off of him effectively. Mm. But I guess they don't really know why it's being done or what the conditions are for doing it or anything like that. Mm. So, you know, I guess naivety and anger is why Pan changed rather than him thinking that that was going to help in some way or or change the outcome. Mm. But Bolvinger, it's, it's described, I thought, interestingly, as a giant stadium, effectively. Like a sports stadium, but with a series of connected buildings around it, which, even though I've read the book before, is not the way I imagine it. I have to concede, I tend to imagine it the way it's shown in the film. I have written the building is like a hospital so I'm not sure where you got the stadium part it, from. It says it's like a stadium with buildings connected by tunnels surrounding it. Yeah, it's only inside that it looks like a hospital. Mm, that's interesting. I don't know what the stadium is. I assume that's like the hospital theatre maybe where they perform the intercision. Mm. Because again, going back to the time period we think it's set in, surgical theatres were called theatres because they were theatres. Like people could go and watch. You'd have stadium-style seating around the outside, um, maybe not as big as a sports stadium, but you know, a little, a little amphitheater. Particularly medical students and other surgeons and scientists, they would just sit around and watch surgery being performed. Mm. So I assume that the intercision chamber or whatever we're calling it is what is in the stadium-looking part, and then all the connected buildings would be, you know, the dormitories where people stay and mm. storerooms and whatnot. Yeah, I'm finding that hard to imagine in my head. Same. Yeah. Because I do think of it the way it looks in the film as being that sort of almost, it's almost like the Crystal Palace or something, but in the middle of the eyes. To see how the TV series shows it. Yeah. And if there's a difference again or, you know, if it's more faithful to the book. I did think also it's quite interesting that the man pays for Lyra. The man pays the hunter for the hunters for her. Yeah. I mean, they're effectively just buying children from people mm. now. And I just kind of, I mean, I know we know what they are doing is wrong, but it's little moments like that that kind of remind you of how diabolical it is, I think. Mm-hmm. 
that starts to become more obvious when she's inside and she starts to communicate with them as well. You sort of see that actually, although I guess in the internal logic of what they're doing of the book, they could maybe justify what they're doing mm. without going into too many spoilers. Um, the people that are doing it are really cruel and it's, it is just a big evil conspiracy. Yeah. Even if they do think it's justified, it's, yeah. And I think it makes it especially kind of heinous. I love the word heinous. So you love the word heinous? Yeah. Just. You know what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to edit the H out of that. And then you're going to tell everyone you love the word anus. Love the word anus. Brilliant, thank you. I'll appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) What do I put up with? Yeah, so it's particularly heinous that they cover the things that they are doing with this kind of act of being caring Mm. and doing it for their benefit. So when the man ushers Lyra inside, he says, we'll look after you here. And that is a straight up lie. They are not doing that. Even the Samoyeds, when they they were talking to her in the Mm. ice, told her they were taking her somewhere nice where people would look after her. Coulter does it when she's kidnapping people. They're inducted. They're grooming them, aren't they? We've said it mm. before. They're they're just trying to groom the kids, and that carries on later when she talks to them again. But she gets inside Bolvanger, and inside it sounds and looks very much like a hospital. So maybe that's where you got that description from. It's described yeah, it's as smelling enough. like one as well. And that also gives a kind of false sense of security because hospitals are places where you do get better and they are places of healing yeah yeah i know for some people they are scary but um i think for a lot of people they're you know you generally think of doctors and nurses as benevolent yeah and it's where you go when you're vulnerable isn't it to to get help Mm -hmm. and lyra as people sort of talk to her and question her, she decides she's just going to feign absolute stupidity which is again pretty clever that the less you say the less you give away She's she's now gone from constructing an identity to the grey man technique where you just appear to be a very boring person so your captors aren't interested in you. She just knows how to act in certain circumstances to get what she wants. And I am very impressed by that because I am rubbish at it. I could not do this because I cannot lie. I hate it. It makes me feel awkward and uncomfortable. <laughs> Just <laughs> trying to imagine you in a position of being kidnapped and taken to a evil <laughs> research station in the ice. I can only imagine what level of panic you'd reach before you got anywhere near the place. <laughs> yeah. So I would not be able to do that. So I would be rubbish. But Lyra yeah. is is made for it. She's, she's clearly read a few Andy McNabb books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. We kind of get a bit more about kind of the process. So um, Lyra's made to strip down and it's weighed and measured. That's kind of another humiliation mm-hmm. to me, it is anyway, for, for the children of Bolvango because she's treated like a specimen. Yeah, and she undresses in front of her, the nurse that tells her to and it specifically says that she feels embarrassed and ashamed by doing it, but she, she goes along with it because she doesn't want to appear like someone that isn't compliant. Mm. Again, with the just perfect perfect behaviour as a, a prisoner of war, effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for the children who are maybe younger than Lyra or less aware than Lyra, that's got to be a humiliating and degrading experience. Mm. In comparison to what they're going to do to them, though, it's just it's a drop in the ocean, isn't it? It is. You know, you, you, you can't help but draw parallels between 
practice and concentration camps at this point, the way people were brought in, stripped of all their possessions, yeah. hosed down, so on and so forth. Yeah, that's what it kind of made me sort of think of. And she's also given clothes that are secondhand, clean but secondhand, mm. and there is something creepy about knowing that those clothes are probably from severed children. So yeah. children that might now be dead. Yeah. They're just recycling the clothes again and yeah. again. Because to them, the children are almost not people. Mm. They're just their test subjects, a commodity like cattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once you've got that kind of frame of mind, then kind of anything goes. Yeah. Interestingly, she describes the demon of the nurse at this point as well. And she gets a chill when she looks at it and, and remarks on the fact that the nurse and the demon both look blank and mm. wondering whether or not the nurses and demons have been severed or whether they've just gone for very subservient blank people to work there as nurses because of what they're doing. Mm. Well, Lyra herself doesn't kind of consider that. It's... No, but I, I wondered it. Yeah. It adds to that kind of weird atmosphere. mm these people that are meant to be like again meant to be caring nurses meant to look after people especially you know ones that look after children and they are polite enough but there's no warmth and there's no personality to them there's no humanity to them no but she does find out from the nurse that the place is called the experimental station she does which is a kind of gross name because they literally experiment on children they've named it after what it is you know yeah pragmatic Yeah. yeah i can't decide whether that's like well, fair enough, they've named it what it is or whether it's just, oof. There's another bit in here as well that's a sort of cinematic bit for me, a really specific one, so I might be reaching a bit, but as she's sort of led through by the nurse, mm. kind of given the tour and they go through the canteen, It dis- um, she's led to an interview essentially with one of the scientists and it describes how in the canteen, because there's no windows, they've got this big photogram, this photograph of a tropical beach oh on the God, wall. Yeah. And that whole bit just immediately made me think of aliens when Ripley gets <laughs> led through the space station past the same sort of thing to go and meet the board of company directors and basically, you know, be accused of being mad because she thinks she's seen these aliens. It reminded me a lot of that. Yeah, you see, visually for me, I would think of something like one flew over the cuckoo's nest or something like that. Yeah. That similar kind of thing of being, you know, the shown around, like this yeah. is a new home kind of thing. Well, I, I thought of that as well. And also 12 Monkeys, mm. uh, really specific. The, the flashbacks that he's having from when he's in the mental asylum always show him apparently on a beach, but when he gets to the, they're actually flashbacks and flash forwards because 12 Monkeys time travel. When he actually gets to that point in reality, he's just stood in front of a giant picture of a beach at the airport. Um, yeah, but it, it does, it evokes, like, all the way through it evo- evokes cinematic imagery to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The nurse also deliberately doesn't explain what the place is when Lyra asks. Yeah, and Lyra specifically stops asking so she doesn't appear too intelligent, but she obviously notices that no one's telling her what they're doing there. Mm. She kind of gives her a a woolly sort of vague yeah. thing about... Well, it's, it's pretty much just like, this is the experimental station, mm. this is the canteen, you know. But it's great, like, but what, 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 you what, what do you do? Yeah. Um, Lyra does manage to save the alethiometer and the spy flight in, though. The, another bit of cunning on, on her part of being like, oh, I'd want my toy. Yeah, she pretends it's toys and they also give her a doll, though. So yeah. she gets a new toy as well. She's not very impressed with she's that not, doll, though, is she? She's never had one before, which isn't a surprise because she's such a tomboy. Yeah. And also she was raised by 
all these old academics at Jordan. So no doll for her. No. It just I find that interesting that um he manages to keep up all those threads of the character throughout the book. Like mm. he you know, he's constantly calling back to that difference in her childhood and stuff with things like that, just pointing out she'd never had a doll before. Like he's extremely good at not only developing characters but remembering where they started as well. Yeah, I think that's gotta be difficult for a, a character that you've created that obviously isn't real. Yeah. To not just kind of forget what the made up story of their life is yeah and they're quite long books so he manages to keep it going really well yeah it kind of reminds you that this is like a really well-formed character that he keeps solid throughout hmm. um so when they do go and see the scientist he does question her about where she came from sterling lies mm. some more good ones and but he doesn't look really creepy again which i hate and he tries to convince her that she was rescued and not kidnapped. Yeah. And I'm like, you're, you're just like gaslighting her on like the most epic proportions. Yeah. It's just horrible. Yeah, because he totally just, she says, I saw people getting shot and stuff. He's like, no, you didn't. The cold can do strange things to you. You can have dreams that seem real and all this crap. And she's like, but I saw people getting shot. No, you didn't kind of you almost I mean obviously they don't want children to be talking to each other about stuff like that because it would create panic and so Mm. on but you almost wonder why they're bothering to lie that much when they know what they're doing to these kids and they know that they're not generally surviving it it's Mm. almost like why go to the effort of confusing them more and trying to sort of cover up the bad stuff you're doing when you know they're going to die anyway I don't I, I wonder whether it's maybe because if people do escape that they can't tell then the whole story, maybe. Yeah. Or I suppose they are, some people do survive and they're working towards probably getting more people to survive the process. Yeah. And yeah, I guess what you don't want is a bunch of survivors going, well, they did this to me, but before that they like shot my friends and... <laughs> <laughs> they paid for me. Yeah, kidnapped me under false pretenses and... I just, yeah, I think that's, that bit really angered me. Creepy, yeah. creepy man. Well, there's... Plenty of anger around Bolvanger because it's pretty much the belly of the beast, isn't it? She's mm. right at the heart of it all now already, not even halfway through the book, and she's pretty much in the lair of the monsters. Mm-hmm. Or the monster's lair, you might say. Yes. Which would be a much better way of saying it. <laughs> um, but she, she then goes for it. She does have a, she gets time for a bit of a nap. She does. A bit of a rest before she gets woken up by yeah. the other children. Well, you say she gets time for a bit of a nap. She's been drugged to, to oh, make shit. her fall asleep. I'd forgotten about that bit. She gets time for a nap because because someone slipped her a night all. Oh, yeah, because the minute she said that like the, the milk tasted strange or something, I was like, hang on a minute. Yeah, and then later she wakes up in the middle of the night with a banging headache and no memory of like how she got into bed or whatever. It's like, um, but she's woken up by other children who are just desperate to gossip about. Mm-hmm. what she knows and they reveal that basically normally kids come in in big groups and it's rare for one kid to come in on their own so they're very interested in her yeah and they know surprisingly a lot i mean kids are observant but they know quite a lot about what's going on in the experimental station they do because she asks them lyra being lyra she wants to know from lizzie brooks's point of view yeah and <laughs> um, so she asks them what they do um and they kind of say it's measurements and tests and there's things to do. It's to do with dust and they kind of weigh your demon and get them to do different things. Mm. And At that point, I started to, and I don't think it's 
right. But I did start to wonder if the demons were made of dust. It made me consider for the first time what the demon is actually made of when they talked about weighing it. Because I'd never mm. really considered before. The demons are solid. They're corporeal because they can fight with people. And obviously they can be weighed. They have mass. Yeah. And for some reason, I'd never really thought about it before. I almost thought of them as being like a ghost that follows you around. But they're not. They're made of something. Yeah. Like, do they have insides? Do they need to eat? I don't know. Because when people die, they just sort of evaporate in a shimmer, don't they? I mean, yeah. they do that in the film, but that's kind of how it's described in the book. They sort of just fade into mm. into yeah. nothing. So I did wonder, are the demons made of dust? Or, or are the demons made of some kind of weird subatomic particle that's linked mm. somehow to the humans. I don't know. I'm sure we will find out. Maybe we will. Yeah, as well as doing all of those measurements and tests and things, they also take them away one by one and they don't come back, which is really creepy. Mm. I mean, I think that's a bit of an understatement, to be honest, but like they just get taken away and then that child doesn't come back again. Right. And, and the kids have various wild assumptions about what they're doing to them, which includes killing them. Yeah, which is interesting because in some ways it's worse in their world. It's hard for us to imagine because mm. we don't have demons, but in their world I think some people would argue, argue that having your demon taken away from you is worse. Yeah, I mean, I, apart from something like a lobotomy, I can't think of anything in our world that would be an equivalent. Mm. But then even with a lobotomy... It, it kind of probably does what removing the demon does from the sound of it. It kind of blanks your personality and stuff. But even that's not, it's not got the kind of obvious physical brutality to it that demon removal does. I don't know, I would say does. like certain forms of abuse maybe um, because they would change your life and how you're able to live your life in such a way. Mm. And I, And that's not, of course, that's not to say that people who are um, survivors of abuse can't go on to live rich lives. Are you thinking of a specific type of abuse? I mean, I want to say sexual abuse, but then I think... I thought um, that's what you were... Yeah, but then I do think that um, physical abuse can have some pretty serious impacts as well. Yeah, you I, know, think, like I think... domestic beating, abuse and, and yeah, things like that. And especially done to a child or in front of a child. Yeah, it, I imagine it takes part of that and until some healing is done, it takes mm. some part of that person away. And that kind of feels similar to having a demon taken away, I think. It yeah. takes some of their innocence and some of their, you know, part of them. Yeah. And I suppose, actually, as as kind of the, the book as a metaphor for church abuse, that makes more sense than the lobotomy analogy, because mm. it's more in keeping with the theme of the book. Yeah. But I did, I don't know, I suppose the thing is that we think of, or I think of intercision and demon removal as being irreversible. And much like a lobotomy, there's no healing from that. You don't suddenly grow mm. your frontal lobes back and go back to how you were before. Whereas yeah. I guess with abuse, it is possible to yeah. recover at least a lot of yourself if you have treatment and yeah. help. Yeah, I suppose that would be where you'd maybe draw the line on that. Mm. But then you'd maybe say that although healing can be done, part of you will always still bear the... There'll be the scars, yeah. Yeah, either physical or mental. Yeah. That. Well, That's quite deep there. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry if yeah. we've just plunged you into a pit of depression, but, you know, Phil has written a book that is a children's book, and yet... It's hard-hitting, isn't it? It really is. As far as kids' books go. It does make me feel bad for 
slating the film quite so much because when you think about it, the ki- the film is more appropriate to children than the book is. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I still stand by the fact that I don't particularly like the film. But when you realise that you're comparing a kids' film that is for kids to a kids' book that is quite walking on the edge of not being for kids, really, uh, when you really read into it, you, you see that maybe it's not entirely fair of a comparison. Mm. So the the indecision's horrid. Yes. And and the children are speculating about it, but none of them really, except for Lyra, probably knows what it truly is. Yeah, that's right. They they even know that they're the gobblers now. They've managed yeah. to figure that part out. But yeah, they don't know the the actual thing that happens to them. Um, no. And they describe themselves as being well-treated but bored. Yeah, interesting that most of the time they're bored rather than scared. Yeah. They're, they're kept in quite a comfortable environment and everything, I suppose. Helps to keep them docile, I guess. Yeah, I suppose you wouldn't want children who are like terrified all the time because I imagine it would make them and their demons difficult to manage. Oh, yeah. It never really specifically says it, but I also wonder if they've drugged Lyra to make her go to sleep. Do they just drug their food regularly to keep them... Probably, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, just to keep them docile. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they're constantly checking their health because it does describe that they often get taken away and measured in different ways. Mm. One of the things the girls say is that they measure dust, as mm. you said, um, but they also frequently seem to do physical exercise and weighing them and mm. checking like basic physical health. So maybe that's because they're drugging them a lot. Mm. Could well be. And they're making sure they're not going to kill them before they've had the chance to... Oh, here's a thought. What would happen to your demon if you'd taken drugs or drank alcohol. Do you think your demon gets high? Yes, it does. Because remember, Lyra and uh, Roger are drinking in the crypt, aren't they? Underneath yeah. Jordan College at the beginning and the demons get drunk before they do. It, I specifically remember it describing like Pan staggering around and the kids think it's really funny and then suddenly they start feeling drunk and they're really ill and stuff. So yeah, if you they were do. high, your demon would be high possibly before you. It just be, does that mean that your that your um, squirrel, your demon, yes, would be just like comatose on your shoulder right now? Yeah, with the codeine, I don't think so. It doesn't make me that. Or it just to be, be like a little woozy. Yeah, it makes me a bit drowsy and um, stuff. But yeah, I don't think the squirrel. Just to remind listeners, we did at some point decide my demon was a squirrel. I can't remember when that was in a past episode, but my yeah. squirrel on codeine would just be like me a bit drowsy a drowsy pain-free squirrel i can just imagine it so clearly for you it just being on your shoulder and just kind of climbing over your head <laughs> you describing it then like and i don't know if this is because i am a bit brain fogged made me think that it was there just for a split second and i nearly went to tickle its chin <laughs> That's worrying. I know. Maybe I'm a little bit more under the influence than I realised. And don't forget, I'm driving us home after this. Well, this could be our last ever. Yeah. If you don't hear from us again, sorry, but I flipped the van and killed us. (laughs) Yeah, but let's assume we'll survive. Um, Just before we go on to the next point, I nearly forgot it. Um, When it specifically mentions that when the scientists are weighing the children's demons and checking their status let's say um they don't touch them that social taboo still exists even though they know they're going to chop the demons off effectively and stuff i thought it's interesting that that is a taboo that is carried through to the experimental station even Mm. where they're doing these other monstrous things 
Yeah, which again goes to show how just, yeah. I was going to say what a dickhead the golden monkey was and then I remember the golden monkey is a demon, not a person. Yeah, demons, demons can touch each, each other. Yeah. Um, Bad point, well made. You know, somebody's touched her demon at some point. Was it when she got kidnapped, I think? I don't think anyone ever has. I think it has specifically mentioned people not touching her demon when things like that have happened. That's how it establishes the taboo. Mm. I'm doing suspicious eyes. I'm sorry, dear listener, that we can't always remember the exact things that happened. I can only imagine that you're sort of yelling at us. Yeah. I'm going, how can you not remember? On that topic, I've enabled voice comments on our anchor podcast station so people can literally now yell at us, how can you not remember if they want. That's lovely. My problem is my memory's not great at the best of times. So, you know, today, under the influence of opiates... Oh, you're using that as an excuse, I see. Yeah, ride every excuse you've got. That's that's (laughs) the law of survival. You don't have to be the best, you just have to have the best excuse. I feel like that's kind of Lyra's motto as well. <laughs> yeah, probably. So yeah, the children are well treated but bored. We yeah. established that. Um, but apart from when Mrs. Coulter visits. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. And at that, Lyra feels quite distressed. Pam mm-hmm. becomes visibly anxious. And the, the children, particularly the one that speculated that what they're doing is killing the children they take away, she says that Coulter likes to watch whatever they do to oh, the no. kids. The kids seem to be... Oh, it's a bit confusing, really, because the kids seem to be partially on to Mrs Coulter because they do say that she's the one who caught them and they also said that she likes to watch what happens to the kids. They do seem to kind of like her in a way, though. But Yeah, but she's still got this kind of allure about her. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, that she... She can charm children to go in into situations they really wouldn't want to be in and probably wouldn't ordinarily go into. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when the kids have got this idea that maybe she's the front of something evil, they, there's still a sort of excitement around her. If I knew much about d and I'd say she's got plus something charisma. <laughs> that's a and d thing, isn't it? Yeah, or oh, that's any RPG thing, any RPG. you know. Well, she's got plus lots of that. Plus 10 charm. Yeah, because she just seems to have a way with people. But I think with that comment about her her liking to watch what happens, that is kind of indicative of what kind of person she really is. Yeah. Like, she's not just a bit bad. She's not just a bit involved in it. Like, she fully knows what happens and is there when it happens. Yeah. And and Mrs. Coulter has become so evil now that she's almost a double cliffhanger in this episode because both chapters close more or less on the revelations around Mrs. Coulter, don't they? Like she's she's become like the baddie that Batman ends on before it does the (laughs) next next week, same bat time, same bat place thing. You know what? So that's the second time in this uh, podcast you've done same bat time, same bat place. Of course. Do you just love it that much? Yeah. I mean, when else am I going to get the chance to do it? Come on, you can't say you don't love those old Adam West Batman films and shows. They were great. I don't think I ever saw them that much as a kid. I only really? saw, like, you know, the animated TV series. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I oh, know they, they were amazing. You'd love them. They're so camp. It's <laughs> it's hilarious. But Adam West is like, Adam West as Batman and Bruce Wayne is so 
warm somehow if that may like compare it to say the Christian Bale Batman <laughs> where basically what you've got is a psychopath who happens to be on the goodies side like the Adam West Batman's almost like Santa Claus with weapons it's <laughs> <laughs> and for Chris's side podcast <laughs> uh, so they do also talk about um the fact that the, the scientists are obsessed with demons. They talk about the measuring of dust. One of the girls says, and I'm going to do, I'm sorry, but I can't do a, like, liary London accent, so Try. you're going to have to put it with him. <laughs> if you ain't got any dust, that's good, but everyone gets dust in the end. Yeah. So the kids, I mean, do the kids know something about dust just by being there? Have they been overhearing things? Yeah, we can only assume, or by hearing the scientists talk about yeah. Things. So they're saying that, that if you haven't got any dust, that's good. Everyone has some. So we're assuming that because the children are uh, young, they don't have any dust. And they accumulate um, it with age. Yeah, because it says because everybody gets dust in the end. Yeah. So that gives us a bit of a clearer idea of why dust is important and where the children fit into it all. Mm. We also get a little callback to the Tartars as well. Um, the Tartars make holes in the schools, in their schools, to, to let, let the dust, dust in. in. Yeah. Which is kind of what we sort of talked about before. About it being a sort of spiritual connection type of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, at this point, everyone she's talking to are girls as well. Yeah. And I think that that, I, I think there might be some relevance to the story with that. But I'm, I actually, I'm just thinking now I'm going to save that for the spoilers bit. So I've got a few good spoilers to talk Ooh, about this time. Yeah, for a change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it is at this point that Lyra gets the somewhat devastating news that Mrs. Coulter is coming to visit in two days' time. I mean, I guess in the back of her mind, while she's been there, she's been thinking about rescuing Roger. And yeah. she immediately sort of says to herself well that's it I've got like two days to execute a plan to yeah. rescue him yeah she's got to she's got to do it and she's got to do it fast because mm. I mean she knows Coulter will recognise her and that will probably be trouble mm. again that's the feeling of Lyra beginning to feel the gravity of the situation a bit more and I think that's kind of compounded by the fact that she says knowing that for hundreds of miles all around her little bed was nothing but fear it's an impactful line, isn't it? It's very impactful. It's quite poetic. It is. And for sort of, although it's not in the done in the first person, although it is kind of Phil, it's <laughs> Phil, Phil. Phil the narrator saying that, um, we get the sense that that is what she is feeling. Yeah. And she is scared. And she knows that, you know, she hasn't got any support. She is on her own. It's mm-hmm. up to her to kind of get, get it done. Yeah. And on the topic of fear, like the opening of chapter 15, Demon Cages, it essentially describes why Lyra isn't more scared. Because <laughs> it talks about how she's basically dull and unimaginative, pretty much, which yeah. is not how I'd have thought of her. But it basically says a, a more imaginative person would have imagined how their plan could go wrong and the danger they were in, yeah. but Lyra doesn't do that. She just assumes everything will work. Yeah, I was kind of a little bit disappointed with this beginning bit because it reminded me of stuff that we've come across before where Lyra is having a thoughtful moment or doing something with a bit more gravity and then all of a sudden she's okay again. Yeah, a a bit like the whole thing when Roger gets kidnapped. Yeah. And she's like, oh God, they've got Roger, what danger is he? And oh, look, a shiny penny. 
Yeah. <laughs> she just kind of forgets it quite yeah. quickly. Um, she's suddenly back to being kind of pragmatic and optimistic. I do, um, yeah. I do think Phil takes a couple of shortcuts around it, pr- things like that. I think every now and then he paints himself into a tad of a corner and can't get himself out. He does so try he, and explain it a little bit by those yeah. things of being like, oh, it's just Lyra's personality. But I'm like, it's really fucking weird personality, Phil. Like, Yeah, this, this amazingly imaginative kid that can read this alethiomy uh, by just imagining can how create it works. characters can... like out of thin air yeah. for it to pretend to be yeah. but she's not creative or imaginative enough right? to be afraid yes yeah it is every now and then that happens it is it's again it's like that star wars screen wipe where it's kind of like <laughs> we don't know how to go from one scene to the next so look at this pretty transition graphic it's kind of like yeah he just sort of goes shit She's not too scared, though, and then we carry on with the story. It's a good job. I like you, Phil. Hey, it's, it really is a great book. It's not perfect, but it is great. Um, so Lyra sees Roger at the canteen at breakfast time. She's good. She's finally, finally got back on him. that. Yeah, because sort of break time and dinner time are the only times the kids get to mix, aren't they, mm. more or less? Because the boys the and genders. girls, which is interesting. Any ideas? What do you think why they might be kept separate? Well, that's what I was going to talk about before, but I've realised that that's spoilery as hell. So I'll save that for the spoilers. My only idea is very spoilery. Okay. Um, But then again, saying that, we know that the ablation board, the gobblers have got something. The ablation board. Ablation. Did I say it like that? Oh, good Lord, really. Ablation. (laughs) It's my ablation board. So. What was that? I was meant to be Italian. It wasn't at all, though, was it? It sounded a bit racially dubious. Did it? Yeah, I would have can point out that my grandma was Italian to get myself off the hook. Does that work? I really I like Gino Di Campo. <laughs> I'm, I'm, that's getting edited. <laughs> <laughs> so the only other thing I can think of that isn't spoilery is since the ablation board are related to the church, maybe it's just a kind of a pious prudishness type thing. Yeah. I think on a most basic level, that's probably it. Yeah. And also, again, in the time period, I think a lot of education was separated, wasn't it? Mm. Boys' schools, girls' schools. So maybe it's just a norm. Why Did you have any ideas why? Yeah, probably something along those lines. Um, the norms of that time, mm. ideas about boys and girls not mixing and having their very strict gender roles and, and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's already well established in the book that gender roles are certainly prevalent in this universe yeah uh so pan speaks to roger's demon yeah at this point the demons become really useful as communication tools because there's a noise there's a lot of demons sneaking off to talk to each other so that the children don't get seen communicating too often i think it's interesting though how they describe it as being hard to talk to each other when when, when they're demons, demons yeah. talking because your attention's kind of pulled away. Yeah, you're concentrating on two things at once. So I assume that they can kind of hear what's being said. I think the way it's described is it's almost like when you're picking out voices from a crowd where you can just hear bits of a conversation, but you're not necessarily fully able to understand mm. it. And it's because she's trying to be in the moment and talking to the other girls so that she appears to be engaged in what they're doing, but also Pan's having, and therefore she is having, this other conversation on the mm. side. And while they're having that conversation, one of the girls that Lyra is at the table with uh, mentions Tony. Yeah, Tony Macarius. And they say something quite mean about him in that um, there's some, there was some kind of issues with Tony while he was there because they thought he was older than he was because his... 
demon didn't change that much. And they say that Tony's demon didn't change that much because he didn't think about much. Yeah. And I wonder whether, considering how Tony is when we meet him at first and things like that, do you think that Tony is meant to be mentally disabled or um, have some sort of learning difficulties in some way that means that his demon doesn't change as much as other children's? Yeah, I didn't I didn't think about it that way until you just said it, but that sort of makes sense. Because all the other children's demons just change all the time, like when they're playing mm. and fighting and doing this and that. Like their demons seem to have a favourite shape, but then they go into other shapes just to mm. suit them. And Tony's didn't because he didn't think about much. Yeah, maybe that's a very gentle way of saying that Tony's mentally disabled. Because I feel like it it's would be. It's also a bit... kind of an offensive way of saying that he's mentally disabled. He doesn't think about much. Yeah, that's it's what I like, thought. Because I thought. I, I'm sure mentally disabled people think about a lot of things. Yeah. I, I assumed it was a child's way of saying something. Like that he didn't think about much was kind of child speak for he doesn't think in the same way as us. Yeah. That's also a really polite form of child speak because I'll, I mean, I'll be honest. When I was a kid, if someone was mentally disabled, I wouldn't have been that euphemistic about it, most likely. No, children can be... Pretty blunt. Yeah. Often brutal. But then it depends. I guess it depends. You get the the idea that she maybe was friendly with him and, you know, you might be a bit more gentle around someone that you knew and cared about, talking about yeah. them, maybe. I think it depends on the age as well because if they're kind of approaching... 10 or 11 does it say he was like nine maybe just that bit older and i mm. think that am i going to use a gender stereotype here and i'm i'm almost kind of sighing at myself saying it that i think girls tend to be kinder with their language and stuff like that i don't think that's unfair i think girls do kind of become a bit more emotionally mature than boys early on mm. yeah Sweeping generalization but i don't think it's i'm not too even unfair. happy with my own sweeping generalization but it's just something to consider that I suppose what I should caveat it with saying is that women Girls are not... Girls bitches. Sorry. <laughs> women are not um, intrinsically more caring or kinder. We are socialised to be that way, in yeah. my opinion. Um, okay. So so women are more socialised to, to, to look after people, so they might feel more caring towards Tony than, say, the boys might. Just, just to inflate yourself a life raft there. Yeah. <laughs> just so you can escape. <laughs> But no, I, I don't think, like from my experience as a kid, I think it would be fair to say that girls were often more kind of gentle and sensitive around things like that than the lads. They certainly became that way earlier on than the lads did. Mm -hmm. I thought it was worth noting as well that it's kind of an outright way of saying the discussion about Tony and his demon not changing, um, of saying that the demons change with their thoughts. I feel like, although that sounds quite obvious... It's not really been kind of outrightly said. No, definitely not. It's quite rare for there to be any discussion of like any internal thought process around the demon change. And normally if you know why the demon changes in the books, it's because it's being attacked or fighting mm. or playing. But it doesn't really necessarily say anything about what the people are thinking when their demon changes or whether they influence it. So I guess this is also a, a, a demon watch moment of demons <laughs> change with their owners' thoughts. Yeah. Um, obviously only children's demons because they're the only ones that can change. Yeah. But that's also interesting because 
they say his demon didn't change much because he didn't have any thoughts. And then you're sort of implying are, are adults' thoughts too rigid? Are they too unimaginative for their demons to change? Is that why they stop changing? Are we Would our, our demons stop changing now because we're boring old people? I think our demons would have stopped changing quite some time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've only Especially just... Yours. I've only... Oh, you bitch. I've only just become boring and old in the past few weeks. Before that, I was vibrant and He's youthful. He's going to mention his back again. I'm not. I wasn't even going there. <laughs> Although I will say that in this past year, I've spent nearly all of it with some form of injury. So that is age confirmed, you know. Like I've had every, in- I've, I've injured every limb you can imagine. You can only imagine two limbs because humans only have arms and legs. But I've injured both of them. Arm and leg. Now back. Finger. Finger tendon injury. I'm old. And that's only happened this year. And at this point there, turning off the podcast. No, people want to know about my injuries. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I tell people on the bus they're riveted. Mm-hmm. Absolutely wrapped <laughs> with hearing about <laughs> all my aches and pains. And now Deidre it's loves it. Not like it was in the old days when I could just roll out of bed whenever I liked and not feel tired and my knees didn't click when I sat down. Anyway. And back to the novel that you're interested in. Yes. Oh, were we talking about a novel? I'm sorry. Are they coming to take me home soon? I need to get settled before bed. (laughs) (laughs) I was in the war. (laughs) I wasn't, obviously. Um, Yeah, so it's just an interesting thing of like, is there a difference in kind of imaginativeness that changes whether or not adults, demons change shape? I think that's pretty that pretty brutal assumption that all adults are just kind of boring and unimaginative. You know, would they not have artists or authors or whatever in their world? Yeah, but maybe if you're an author, you would think mostly about writing, so your demon would just be a pen. <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, you can't see my face, listener, but I'm just, I am aghast at the stupidity of this man. Oh, God, you're just so mean. So what I mean is, you know, adults can be imaginative, but you tend to focus on the main thing that you're doing. So like if you're a painter, you'll imagine a lot about painting. If you're a gardener, you'll imagine a lot about gardening. Um, Mm. But maybe that's why the demon gets fixed. Maybe your focus becomes one thing, your demon becomes one thing. What are you saying? Like when you're a kid, your thoughts kind of skip all over the place? Yeah. I mean, imagine what it was like as a child. You know, I used to, one second I'd be in my head, I'd be a soldier. The next second I'd be a cowboy. Then I'd just be me again. I used to think I could just grow up to be Indiana Jones. Not even the actor playing him, just Indiana Jones. I thought that was possible when I was really small. Then again, I also thought my nipple fell off once. So, you know, but that's a whole other thing. I don't even know why I said that. Well, prepare for that in a future episode. Listeners, let us know if you'd like to hear the story about Chris's missing nipple. (laughs) (laughs) This is just, this is the painkillers. I can't Mm -hmm. help it. I'm getting rambly and weird now. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you're a kid, though, your brain changes gear a lot, doesn't it? Mm. And as an adult, you tend to be a bit more focused and a bit more measured in your thoughts, I think. I mean, I just know that I don't have the imagination I did when I was a child, and I suspect a lot of people don't. I think the thing is, it's hard though, isn't it, to think back on you, yourself as a child and imagine what it was like thinking with that brain. Yeah. So getting kind of back on track as we have wandered far off that path, the children discuss why the gobblers are so interested in demons. 
and it suggested that maybe they kill them to see if the demon dies, or the other way around. They kill the demon to see if the person dies. dies. Yeah. Um, But then question kind of if that was the case, why would they repeat it? Yeah, you'd just do it once and be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that does kill people. Unfortunately, what the children have done here is failed to understand how scientific experiments work. Yeah. Um, Not their fault. They're only kids. But they need to repeat it because they just kind of need the proof, I guess. Yeah, I get to do more science. So in the world of science, having one case where something happens isn't enough to prove that that is always the case. So a really good example is like, well, and this is a real world example. And since we're dealing with child abuse and stuff like that, I'll go there. In, in sort of the 80s or 90s, 90s, I think it was, a particular doctor claimed that vaccines caused autism based on essentially his gross and it turned out intentional misinterpretation of data. What he said was more vaccines are being given now and more children are getting autism which wasn't actually true, more vaccines were being given, but it had now been possible to diagnose autism properly. So naturally, people that previously wouldn't have been diagnosed as autistic, they'd have just been diagnosed as idiots. That was actually an official term for autistic people at some point. Um, They were being properly diagnosed. He did it on purpose because essentially what he was doing, I believe, was something along the lines of writing a book about these issues that he wanted to sell. Um, So he was struck off as a doctor. The problem is that people still believe that's the case and what happens is sometimes a parent's child will be given a vaccine and then it's autism symptoms, to, for lack of a better word, characteristics will come out. But just because two things appear to line up doesn't mean that they're related to each other. Correlation does not imply causation, is the official term. So you need to repeat something a lot and control all of the variables in that experiment in different ways until you can prove the link between two things happening. So you could kill someone's demon and the child might die, but that child might have been sick anyway and just happened to die after its demon was killed. So you'd have to do it again and again until you know that it's not dying because the person's sick. And then you'd have to think about what if they had an allergy and we gave them food they were allergic to just before the experiment and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, you need to repeat experiments with as big a population as possible to prove that something is real effectively. And that was a long and roundabout way of saying what needed to be said. (laughs) We then find out, um, or a girl kind of pipes up and says that she was actually with Tony when he was taken she was uh hiding in the laundry closet with him so i assume and she seems a bit shifty about it so i assume they were like i don't know maybe having a cuddle or something mm, whatever the kids yeah whatever the kids kind of thing that they were doing and i am i am going to do some quotey quotes here because i feel like really helps kind of explain the conversation yeah so it says we won't hurt you and he says What's going to happen? And she says, we just put you to sleep and then we do a little operation and then you wake up safe and sound. And that's bullshit. Yeah. And just, again, it's that thing of being all the more sad because the children are scared, but they are trying to tell them that everything's going to be fine. You're going to be, you know, you're going to wake up safe and sound. Um, They know that's a lie. Yeah, because the children don't come back. If they're safe, why wouldn't they come back? And it says, we won't hurt you. 
Also a lie. Just just completely outright lie. We won't hurt you, said the priest to the choir boy. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. And the phrase also that caught my attention was, it's just a little operation, just a little cut. Yeah. Understatement of the century is that, because it is obviously not just a little operation, and not just a little cut, because it separates you from your soul and potentially kills you. Quite a big cut, that. Yeah. I'm going to cut your soul off. The children are all obviously freaked out by her saying this. I think the kind of reality of hearing part of this conversation that's happened to one of the child that's children that's been taken is kind of scares me even more. Um, so I've got one final quote, which is kind of a chunky one, but it, again, it's it's between the nurse and um, actually, I think it's just the nurse this time saying what happens when you um, go through that process of indecision. She just said, it's something to make you more grown up. She said everyone had to have it. That's why grown-ups demons don't change like ours do. So they have to cut them to make them one shape forever. And that's how you get grown up. That, I mean, reading that bit, to go back to the topic we talked about last week, reminded me a lot of circumcision. The Mm -hmm. whole, it's just a little cut, you'll be a grown-up afterwards. Mm -hmm. I mean, this wouldn't apply to religious people because it's done to them at a very early age. But because mine was medical and I was a bit older, I'm pretty certain it was described to me almost exactly as you'll just go to sleep and we'll make a little cut and then you'll be fine. You're talking about your circumcision again. You just can't help talking about it, can you? What can I say? My cock is my soul. (laughs) (laughs) Did that tickle you? Some people recoil in horror away from their listening devices. Um, So not only are they lying to the children because not not all adults have been cut. Yes, maybe all adults have demons that settle, but that's not how it's done for most people. It's almost like they're trying to imply that this happens to everyone and yeah. that's how you'll be fine. You know, this is fine. Trying this to is how you normalise it. Isn't that what you want? Yeah. And then also that sounds quite um, kind of similar sort of sort of language around sexual abuse and things. It's, it's grooming again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is like this happens to everything. This will make you grown up. This is what grown ups do. Also also puts me in mind of how Lyra was told that the battle didn't happen. It's that whole, this yeah. didn't happen this way. Like training people to remember things and think mm. of things in a particular light. Trying to phrase the kind of the narrative in the way that they want it to be. Yeah. And also, why did, why did children need to be made to grow up? The idea that they need to be forced to grow up and cannot be allowed to simply be. I mean... When I always thought of that part as just them trying to incentivize the children to go along with it, because mm. when you're a kid, often you are quite—I mean, I was quite in love with the idea of growing up. <laughs> I just really thought that being a grown-up would be the best thing ever, and I think a lot of kids quite look forward to growing up, particularly kids who don't have very nice childhoods. And True. that's what a lot of these kids are. We, we've already established that culture tends to pick vulnerable kids, poor kids, so on, possibly even mentally disabled kids. So I almost saw it as the children would be the sort of kids that would really look forward to growing up and they're being told, you know, this is how it happens. It's almost encouraging them to go along with it by framing it as something that they might want. Well, those those words that I read out, the actual quotes, are the ones, you know, what was said to Tony. Yeah. So 
considering that he might be kind of slightly less intelligent or slightly less able to process information than the others, to be told those kind of things. It gives gives him the impression that they might make him like everyone else. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, maybe that's something he wants. Maybe he wants to be able to fit in with the other children and, you know, all of that. And that's, oh, God, that's just maybe incredibly sad. Mm. And I know it's not real and we might joke about it not being real, but the other things that we've talked about are real. Yeah, um, and, and this is, as we've said before, it is a metaphor for child abuse, particularly child abuse within the church, mm. but in general. Yeah, and Phil is a clever guy in that he's, you know, he puts it all in this, the frame of this kind of really amazing story. Yeah, the more you think about it as an adult, the harder it hits. I suppose in a way this does work as a children's book because a child wouldn't be thinking about sexual abuse while they were reading this. They'd just be thinking, oh, it's terrible to have your demon removed. But there's a lot coded into it for an older reader. Mm, Yeah. And it's at this point that the doctor actually takes the girl who was telling them about Tony, which is just really horrifying for her. just comes in in the middle of her story and calls her name. Yeah. And the children are sent out to exercise and they just kind of forget their fear. Yeah. Being children, they are just kind of a little bit faster to kind of forget how scared they are, I think. Yeah. And I guess they're probably getting used to it. They've obviously seen this happen multiple times. Mm. It's just one of those things for them now. It's the reality of where they are. And I guess because they don't know exactly what it is yet, they've got an idea it's not great, but they don't know. It would be easier to kind of soothe yourself with the idea, well, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe it is just what they say it is. Maybe let's just not think about it at the Mm -hmm. minute. Yeah. Although I did make a note that it was another example of Lyra kind of letting go of something a bit too fast. Yeah. But maybe it kind of works. Maybe we're just being a bit too harsh because maybe children do. I feel like it'd be the kind of thing that children would gossip about. I'm just thinking about like when you were at school and someone got called out of class. That'd be, <laughs> that'd be for at least the rest of the day, people would be talking about it. Why did they get taken out of yeah. class? Have they done something wrong? You know, lots of speculation. But I guess if this is a regular occurrence, they've probably exhausted all those conversations mm. already. They've probably been over it a million yeah. times. I'm surprised they're not more kind of upset because... They've obviously been spending time together in this place and they're obviously friends. Yeah. That they're not more like, oh, I'm never going to see this person again now they're gone. Again, maybe they're drugged. Maybe they're mm. sedated or something. Or again, just used to. Or just used people, to suffering, yeah. Which is. scarier. Yeah, definitely. So they go outside to exercise and Lyra bumps into Billy Costa. Ooh, the gang's and, back together. Yeah, and tells him about um, that the, the rescue party's coming. So Billy Costa must be super excited at this point because it's just like basically all your family are coming here and they're going to kick the shit out of these guys. Yeah. I thought what was interesting here, just to take it aside Mm -hmm. a bit, is when the kids go out, they're given like a ball game to play. Mm -hmm. And it says that Lyra's never played sports before. That seems unusual. Yeah. And I just wondered, is that because she was raised by old men at the college or is that a gender role thing? I would assume not a gender role thing because the girls are being allowed to play sports now and everything at this ice station that's an experimental station, it does seem to obey the norms of society, like not touching demons and mm. so on and so forth. So maybe it's just to do with Lyra's upbringing that she's never played sports. But I just thought that was interesting. Mm. Another callback to Lyra's early childhood, her early development. Lyra asks Billy Costa for some kind of a bit more info 
Luckily, Billy Costa has more info. Uh, and he says that severed children are taken south to another hospital. Yeah. Um, that is a new piece of information and also maybe explains why they are kind of lied to a little bit. Maybe this is why, because they do get taken somewhere afterwards and they need to keep them compliant. I never thought of that, but maybe the people at the other place don't know exactly how they're being brought into the experiment and things. I guess it's that thing of the more people you have in on your conspiracy, the harder it is to keep. But we don't actually know what happens to them once they're there. We just know that they get taken to this hospital. I mean, to be fair, we don't even know if this other place exists. I it's... did wonder that because obviously Tony Macarius, like how the hell did he get out? Mm. We're told that he's not particularly smart or whatever, yet he's managed to escape somehow yeah. and stay alive for a certain amount of time. So maybe it's just a lie. I mean, at that point, I started to think there was like, there's this old Inuit practice, allegedly. I actually don't know if this is true, but I'm going to say it anyway, where when someone becomes quite old or sick, they're essentially abandoned in the ice flows to die and i did wonder if the children that become really ill from having their demons severed were maybe they just abandoned them in the snow to let them die just to dispose of them and maybe he just managed to find his way to a village that's really sad yeah <sighs> tony macarius i just want to like look after you it's and too late give He's you dead. a good home life and a warm mug of cocoa and I won't actually be your mum because I'm not very good with kids, but I'll at least hand you on to the proper social services. I am inept with children. Let me look after you, Tony Macarius. <laughs> what I mean is How I'm just... What can it be? I'm not maternal, but, like, I do, um, you know, his character does... You just want to care for him. Yeah. Uh, he's he's the character who's specifically put in the book to suffer all the evils so that we know what the mm-hmm. evils are. He only ever pops up when something bad's happened to him. Yeah, he just doesn't have a chance. He's never had a chance in no. life, isn't it? He's, he's the, his Dark Material is equivalent of a red shirt in Star Trek, isn't he? Like, as soon as they get put in the away team, you know the alien's going to kill them. Huh. So Roger tells Lyra about a hiding place in the ceiling. Yeah. And they, as soon as he says this, like, you know what's going to go down. Those impeccably well-trained spy cogs of Lyra start turning and she already begins to formulate her Mm -hmm. escape plan. And it says she's not so much interested in hiding up there, but she's thinking maybe she can use it to move around the ice station above the ceiling without anyone seeing. Yeah, she's thinking above and beyond. She's she's like, not only can I get up there, I'm going to just use this. It's going to be like the scene out of Alien. Yeah, crawling through the vents. Also, uh, is it Back to the Future? No. There are many films and kids yeah. shows where people crawl through vents and it's it's happening here in Lyra's mm-hmm. head. And the doctor tells the children about a fire drill that's going to happen. And she thinks, <laughs> what yeah. better opportunity to get up to mischief, possibly yeah. in the ceiling. She's able to put a plan together quickly, is that Lyra? Yeah. Although it doesn't specifically say she's got a plan, but it kind of hints that she picks up on these things and they might become part of a plan in the future. Yeah. 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 So then Lyra's taken with the other children and she's tested for dust, isn't she? Yes. And Lyra kind of asks the doctor about dust, but she does her Lizzie Brooks routine, pretends to be a bit stupid, so she can kind of get away with asking without drawing too much suspicion. Well, she she also asks them about whether they're removing people's demons. (laughs) She she actually risks asking them, like, are you cutting people's demons away? And they get Uh, a bit mad. Yeah, or the doctor just lies and then, but yeah, gets a bit stroppy with her. Wants to know why she knows that or how or where she heard it. Yeah, because I don't want the children to know that. No. I assume because they want to keep them calm. 
Yeah. I mean, if you knew that was going to happen to you, considering how important that is in their world, you'd try and escape. You wouldn't care about the danger. Mm. Like if you're going to get that done anyway, you might as well make a bid for freedom. Yes. And then, as if by magic, the fire alarm. Yes. The much anticipated for at least half a page fire drill. And Lyra uses her wits to get her old clothes back. Because they're all equipped with outdoor clothes to go out mm-hmm. to but assemble. But because she's being measured up and stuff, she's like, oh, why don't we just use my clothes that are in this cupboard nearby? And so she's got the alethiometer and the, um, the smiting and everything. Lyra then goes to find Billy and Roger and she suggests they kind of do a little bit of a covert mission around the building to kind of see what they can find. Yeah, and off they trot. Oh, and not before, though, that Lyra creates some extra chaos by throwing a snowball. That's brilliant. She starts a snowball fight for them to escape away from the fire drill. Yeah, I actually put in my notes at this point, clever girl. Yeah. Because that is a stroke of genius. Yeah. I wish I could be more Lyra sometimes, Mm -hmm. just thinking on her feet. And in that way, she is quite unchildlike. She knows how to think ahead. And she knows how to read people. She gets kind of people's motivations and how they're going to react to things, which I think is quite... um, it's quite useful. So they, so they go off on a little explore while this is all going on. And luckily, Kaiser the Goose, who is Serafina Picala's demon, arrives to provide some exposition for us. Yes. So John Farr is wounded, but, but he's okay. The Egyptians yeah. are a day away. So that kind of adds into that time frame thing of getting everything done. Miss Court is arriving. The Egyptians are nearly there. It's also worth noting that Roger and Billy are freaked out by Kaiser because he doesn't have his human. Yeah, Lyra's met Kaiser before, so she isn't, but they've probably never seen a demon without a person before. So they're freaked, and it's a good job they go back to the snowball melee before mm-hmm. they see what happens next. Yes, indeed. Lyra does boss the boys around quite a lot in this bit. She's just like telling people what to do, which I quite enjoyed. She's quite bossy anyway, isn't she, though? Yeah. I, I put a note here. Lyra kind of reminds me of Caroline. Caroline is my sister. And at this point in particular, she's like, right, you guys need to do this thing. You guys need to do this thing. Sort it out. I, on the other hand, not a natural leader. I can only lead people when I feel like I'm kind of gently encouraging. But that's a very good form of leadership. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does its thing, but. Yeah, you don't have to be bossy to be a leader. Also, you know, actually the use of the word bossy um, is quite pejorative, really, because it does tend to be used for women rather than men. Does it? Yeah. I think the word you'd use for men is assertive. Oh, there's a big difference between being bossy and being assertive. There is, but stop being not typical. Sorry. (laughs) Would you like me to become a massive stereotype to help you out a bit? Yes. Okay. So once you sent the boys away, um, Kaiser then opens the locked door door but how does he open the locked door you might ask with magic i asked before when we were first introduced to the witches about witch magic and whether it really Mm. exists and now i'm wondering whether it's the demons the souls that do magic rather than the witches oh that's interesting i haven't thought of that yeah because this kind of does say that magic does exist in this world because he he kind of clicks his tongue you blow, you chuck snow at stuff and then you make noises at it and it opens. Yeah. Which is quite handy. Well, do they throw snow at the door to unlock the building they're going into? Because I know specifically in a moment they'll be blowing snow onto things that then get unlocked, but I didn't know if the snow yeah, was there's, something there's a lot else. Of, no, there's a lot of snow throwing. 
Right, so you throw <laughs> snow on something, you click your tongue. And then it gets unlocked. I hope no burglars are listening because we've just made their jobs a lot easier. No. You just chuck some snow. Only can be a burglar in the winter though, so you'd better have a busy season. Yeah, and it needs to actually snow. Yeah. So best be dreaming of a white Christmas. So while this is going on, Pan is getting kind of more agitated and fearful, but he kind of hides inside Lyra's hood, I think. Yeah. So he doesn't show it because he's trying to be brave, I think. I he think he wants to, to show off to Kaiser. Kaiser. Yeah. And what we see when they open the doors are the demons of the severed children in glass cases, kind of ghost-like in appearance. Yeah, sort of faded, almost see-through. Imagine how much Billy and Roger would have freaked out if they'd seen a whole room full of demons without their people. Yeah, I don't feel like they'd have been able to cope with it as well as Lyra does. She's seen a lot more about indecision already because she found Tony Macarius, yeah, of course, but I think as well. in general she's quite good at coping with difficult or stressful situations. Yeah, she's quite robust. Mm. But what do you think makes the demons less substantial? Because it describes them as being ghost-like. I don't honestly know. I genuinely don't. I mean, we know that when a person dies, their demon fades completely. So maybe being separated from them weakens the demon, but doesn't completely Mm. kill it. And maybe that fadedness is a sign of the demon's weakness or something. It does kind of indicate that you know, they might, not only they might not, but they probably aren't made as the same kind of material that human bodies are. No, it could just be a good device for the book as a way to be able to describe the difference between a demon Mm. that's severed and one that isn't. Yeah. Um, Kaiser becomes angry, kind of understandably, because he's a demon, so... Lyra tells him about Tony at this point. And the demons are scared and in pain as well, which... She describes some of the cages as empty as well, and that maybe they belong to children who've died, so their demons have vanished. Well, yeah, because they see um, a glass case that has Tony's name on it. Yeah. And his demon is not there. So you can only assume that, you know, she must have died when he did which indicates that there is some link still there because when he died she did yeah and it just kind of goes against what all the nurse said about the demons being safe after the cut they clearly are not safe or well in any way but i wonder if the demons would be okay if although they'd been severed they were allowed to stay with their people Mm. i mean I, i suspect that it would still make them different than before being severed but would they still be ghostly and in pain yeah, that's interesting. We don't know because they've been well, they're, they're separated physically by, yeah, distance as well might, as... Yeah, but the, that's the thing, isn't it? By severing them, really all they're doing is allowing them to be pulled further apart because there's still some link there because the demon dies when the person does. Mm. Lyra also wants to smash the cages that she sees, but Kaiser kind of advises her against that mm. because he's like... They'll know. Yeah, basically. For once, Lyra's not on it. <laughs> She's not on her uh, on point with her spy skills. So he uses the magic again to unlock the cages mm. so they can get out. See, this is where I got confused about the snow blowing because his idea is we'll make it look like the room and the cages were accidentally left unlocked so they can escape. And I thought when he said go blow snow on the cages, it was to make it look like they'd frosted as if the door had been left open to the outside. Um. So I didn't actually pick up on the point about snow being something to do with the magic spell throwing snow on things maybe it's not and i'm just being a complete idiot oh have you just called yourself an idiot yeah oh dear now i'm really worried that i've said something really stupid and everyone's gonna be like sarah you fool it's another great opportunity for people to leave us voice comments the really good ones will make it into the shows at some point 
can you tell that Chris is excited about the voice comments? Yeah, I am. What a concept. People can talk back to us across mm. time and space. <laughs> um, do you think like the magic in this sense feels a little bit weird because there's no sort of intro to it? Oh, it's the deus ex machina thing again, isn't it? It just shows up conveniently at the point when they precisely need it to happen. Mm. But again, you know, they've established that they're witches. We think of witches as magical, so maybe it's not that weird. But yeah. it is It is very convenient that Kaiser just shows up right now to do some magic. Yeah. The demons are released, obviously, from their cages. And interestingly, they actually kind of try to crowd round and touch Lyra, mm, despite but, the taboo. And it says they longed to press themselves against a heartbeat. They oh, just, they just uh, miss their people so much that they yeah. almost break the taboo to, to be close to someone. Yeah. Uh, which also begs the question, do demons not have heartbeats? Well, this is the thing, isn't it? They're not real animals. They yeah. exist in the sense that there's some physical thing there, but, you know, they just vanish when someone dies. They just fade out into dust or mm. or something that looks like dust. So, yeah, I guess they don't have internal anatomy. No. I mean, it would make it a lot harder to change shape if you had to reconfigure all your internal organs as you were doing it, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, it would. So Kaiser decides to take the demons with him to find their find their people. Yeah. Which is nice. I mean, they won't be the same again. I think he actually says that they'll be split forever, but they might be able to find some form of kind of peace. Mm. I wonder if they ever do find their people. I hope so. Mm. Because otherwise the other option is just really sad. And he also sends Lyra back to the other children. But not before Lyra asks whether the witches could fly or help the balloon fly. And I'm like, no, stop it, Lyra. Stop thinking about Lord Asriel, especially right now. You've got bigger, better things to think about. But she's back on the saving Lord Asriel train again. Yes, because her original plan was flying flying on a balloon and get him. And she's still trying to figure out ways of making that balloon flight work. Well, yeah, because it's got to carry... Um, uh, well, it needs the wind with it because it's an ordinary hot our, air balloon. It needs our friendly panzerbjorn in there as well. It does. And he is heavy. So Kaiser also does a bit of a kind of indication that the events the witches are dealing with might be kind of related to everything else as well. Yeah, because when she asks about whether the witches might come to help, he sort of says, oh, there's lots of politics going on, I can't go into it, but but it's possible that what the witches are dealing with is connected to this. Mm. So it indicates that bigger things are happening in the world that maybe the humans aren't aware of, but witches are. Mm. And we've kind of already spoken a bit or been told a bit about how the witches are maybe in some form of conflict and Mm. there's definitely a much bigger world than even most of the humans in the book know about yeah but that's been the kind of the case so far is that every time we're introduced to a new idea then somewhere along the line it gets linked to something else or linked to something higher up keeps branching out now so we're getting this idea that you know everything is all coming together and it's all heading somewhere lyra's slowly uncovering something massive yeah but what and how? So, yeah, Kai's heard that the demons flies away with them. Bless them. They're all, some of them are struggling to fly and he's looking after them and everything. So, on that point, does that mean that even severed the demons still change shape? Because they weren't all yeah, birds. Yeah, it does say that they change shape to become demons. They do, demons, yeah. confirmed. Sorry, I haven't got that in my notes. So that's interesting as well, because mm-hmm. it means that even, even the idea that demons stop changing shape after being severed is wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Their hypothesis has been well and truly yeah, proven wrong. Their, their whole idea was, you know, you won't change, your demon won't change, it will settle, you'll become an adult. 
there's not an element of truth in any of that. Not only are they not safe and stuff, they also haven't even achieved the thing that they wanted to achieve. Yeah, we're assuming that is what they want to achieve. The whole thing might be, they might knowingly be fabricating it. Mm. Or maybe that's what they want and it hasn't happened yet and that's why they keep bringing kids up there to sever them. They're trying to perfect their, their process. Yeah. Once Lyra does get back to the other children, she asks Billy and Roger to pass on a message to all the other children, which is that there is a, an escape planned. They join the fire drill, they're all going to do mm. this, like... Sorry, not... They've just had the fire drill. When it, when she sets the fire alarm off, they'll escape. Yeah. Now, I'm a little bit confused about this part because do you think it is risky to ask young children to keep a secret? Hell yes. <laughs> but also, she wants to get them out of there and she knows the Egyptians are coming, so I suppose she wants everything to be right so that once the Egyptians show up, she hits that alarm and the kids go wild and they've got the best chance to escape. But yeah, it's risky. Especially if children are scared, they might tell an adult to try and save themselves. Yeah, not only because the children might outrightly go to an adult, but sometimes children aren't known the best at being kind of... They're not the um, best liars and the mm-hmm. best at hiding things. Things, no. And there, there might be sort of a bit of an air of excitement or people talking about it and they might not be good at keeping things kind of as secret as they should be. So I thought that was, yeah, kind of a, a bit of... Bit of a risky one. But also clever because she picks upon the kind of the ablation board's disorganisation in terms of she's kind of witnessed what happens during the fire drill when it's all a bit chaotic and, you know, they don't know how to look after the children and yeah. keep them in order. They haven't got all their equipment ready and all this stuff. So she kind of sees that and works with it and is like, right, I can do this if yeah. there's another fire alarm. That's it. She sort of notices that they're not very good at organising the children once mm-hmm. they're together in a big group. But that does also beg the question, why aren't they? Like, if they're having fire drills and they know they've got to organise the children, mm-hmm. why aren't they able to do it? Yeah. Why not just leave the children in there for the fire drill if they're killing them anyway? To be honest, I love the fact that like this all centres around a fire drill in the first place because the idea that they've still got health and safety in <sighs> that world really tickles me. Health and safety gone mad. There's there's some guy that has to go up there and he really hates it because every few months he has to go up and like double check their like health and safety right. standards. Do you think some health and safety inspector comes up to this secret ice station and... Well, yeah. we've just got to check your fire drill paperwork's in order. Who is the fire warden? Do you have enough evac chairs? Yeah, just the kind of the banality of that whole fire drill scenario is something that I find quite amusing. Yeah. Um, and it, it does, though, play a good purpose in this. It's well, good for Lyra. It's good for, it's good for the escape plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we can kind of think any more about the escape plan or about anything else, really, a Zeppelin arrives. Ooh. There's a really nice kind of visual description of it descending through the sky with its lights blazing down and its big silver blimp comes to a halt. And who's looking out of the window? Mrs. Coulter and that goddamn monkey. Dun, dun, dun. That's Mrs. Coulter's second cliffhanger in as many chapters. Yeah. So she is on site. So basically it's all kind of heading now. Well, all coming to a head. Yeah. It's... <laughs> because, you know, this is planned to escape. The Egyptians are coming. Mrs. Coulter's coming. It's going to be mayhem. Oh, if Azrael was there, well, it really would be the full reunion. Be, you know, roundhouse kicking people to the chest. I don't know. Because Lyra thinks he's amazing and can do anything. And that was the most amazing thing I could think. The most amazing thing you could think of was Azrael Roundhouse kicking people to the chest. Yeah. Is Azrael sort of Chuck Norris in your imagination? Mm. When Azrael does push-ups. imagination. When Azrael does push-ups, he pushes the world down. Yeah. So quite a kind of hectic couple of chapters, really. Yeah. 
quite action orientated, a little bit more of the bringing threads together type vibe to it. Finding out lots of information. I always remember at school, they used to tell us when you write a story, you've got the beginning, which is the bread, the middle, which is the meat and the end, which is more bread, like a sandwich. And we're in the meat now. (laughs) Well, and truly in the meat. We're properly in the meat. Um, I feel like I'm like my enjoyment of those chicken chops is because we've got kind of a lot more demon stuff, a lot more indecision stuff. Because although it's kind of grim, it's some of the most interesting parts of the book. Yeah. So it's kind of been interesting reading those bits and rereading those bits. I mean, these last two episodes have revolved around parts of the book that are about very dark things. They have. Um, so if someone, say Phil, for instance, could just write the rest of the book and make it a bit more lighthearted, we could stop depressing you so much. <laughs> well, rewrite the rest of it. <laughs> Do you want to just kind of go home and open up your copy of the book and discover it's turned into like the twit spiral doll or something? Oh, look. <laughs> yes. Hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Um, and I say this every time. Again, as we start and end with everything with, I'm excited. I'm excited for the next thing. <sighs> so excited. But... Considering everything that's about to go down. Yeah. And and there's still a lot more to come. We're not even halfway through the book, really. Which seems insane because it feels like we've been doing this forever. I know. Weeks and weeks. Mm. Thanks for sticking with us. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. To those of you that have. We're sorry. Um, <laughs> Chris, do you want to... Oh, we are going town. into spoiler territory because for the first time in ages, I've got some like proper spoilers that I've even called out during the episode. Wow. A big one is the nurses and their demons being blank and giving Lyra a chill when she first sees them. Mm-hmm. Are the nurses severed from their demons? Yes. Yes, they are. And is this does this go back a bit to the kind of point I made about it being a bit like lobotomy? Because people who have been lobotomised are often more compliant, mm. more docile, because their personality has been kind of partly destroyed yeah. sometimes. Now, I'm really stupid and I couldn't figure out why the nurses and things were so different from the children who'd been in the same situation of like, because they are adults. Yeah, they've been severed (laughs) after adulthood. (laughs) Yeah. And that makes a difference. So obviously it still has negative effects and that it makes them bland and unimaginative. Damages their character. But it doesn't traumatise them maybe in the same way and doesn't um, kill them potentially. Although it might kill some of them. Yeah, because we don't know. Yeah, we've only met the ones that yeah. have survived. But it's only the nurses, not the doctors. Mm. And it's only women, therefore, because in this, all the nurses are women. Yeah. Does it say only the nurses? Well, the thing is that it, it only describes the nurses as being blank in that way, yeah. whereas the doctors are not. And I suppose, in a sense, if it made you less imaginative and made you flatter, if you're a scientist, not having an imagination is really harmful. Like... <laughs> How are you going to concoct experiments and stuff out of your imagination if you've not got one? Yeah. I thought it was an interesting reflection of how obeying the laws of, like, the church, for instance, might make you behave. Yeah, being a bit blind to what's happening around you. Mm -hmm. can assume that maybe that's part of why they've been done, because Mm -hmm. otherwise you've got to have an awful lot of people that are willing to harm children. It makes them obedient, subservient unquestioning yeah what else did you have um the the thing about children uh girls and boys being separated i wondered if that was partly an effort to stop their demons from settling before indecision happens because as we find out way later in the books lyra's demon essentially settles when she falls in love when um it's when will strokes pan 
Mm. He settles. So do you think that is to stop that from happening? Is that, that I always read that. is a really interesting idea. And I think potentially yes, because although they say they want the children to grow up, they don't really, they want those particular children as a, uh, subjects. Yeah. So, Test yeah. Test subjects. And they want, yeah, they want to be doing the indecision before their demons have settled mm-hmm. as part of their experiment. Yeah. So I did wonder that is, because I always read, Lyra's demon settling when her and Will snuggle up as it being related to them falling in love for the first time yeah, maybe be. becoming sexually mature it's it's funny because you're doing like a thing with your hand which is meant to be like a stroking motion but it just looks quite weird <laughs> Do, does it <laughs> I'm enjoying it okay I mean everyone else will just have to imagine, imagine how it. enjoyable it is but yeah I did wonder that are they keeping them separate as much as possible to prevent that maturity happening Mm. between them and to prevent their demons from settling. Mm. Quite possibly, yeah. My other spoiler point, actually, I talked about a little bit in the the main podcast just before, is just about how Lyra's asked if her demon can still change and how much that relates to the experiment. Because it's only later in, in this chapter that we even get a hint that they might be interested in experimenting on people whose demons don't change yet. Like, I don't think that's been specifically revealed direct from the source. It's all sort of speculative. So I suppose though we kind of said, oh, why does Pan change? You know, he he could have saved her kind of thing. Actually, it might not have, because they're just interested in cutting demons off. So she might have found herself with it done anyway. Yeah, but as an adult case rather than an experimental child case. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that is, those are my main spoilers that really jumped out at me. There's some good ones. Yeah, 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 for a change. I feel like spoiler alert wasn't just me basically saying, now I don't have to worry about talking about things that haven't happened yet, but I've got (laughs) nothing to say. (laughs) Or or I only have amorphous things to say to like have real specific points to make. Yeah. Should we say goodbye before either of us ramble anymore? Please do engage with us on social media through... Facebooks and Instagrams, which are available in the show notes, our links to. Yeah. And we genuinely would like it if you, you know, pop in our comments or anything and, and say nice things to us, because, or even mean things, I don't know, because yeah. it is just nice to hear from you to know that you're actually out there. Yeah. We d- we actually did have a really lovely comment on Instagram from a listener. Should we give them a shout out? We had a lovely comment, as I said, on Instagram from Seymour Glass. So thank you for that. Uh, genuinely made by Doe. Yeah, it really did. She she texted me immediately and was like, someone's been really nice to us on Insta. Uh, so <laughs> it's nice to get feedback. But you can leave voice comments now, which I'm really, really excited about. Did you know you can leave voice comments? I don't know if Chris mentioned uh, it. Have I time. mentioned voice comments? That's a thing. You can do that. You can record on your phone, on your laptop, microphone, whatever you want. And we could even play it with your permission, of course. So please engage with us. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>